Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast. At Evolution, we are committed to helping people and Nordic tech organizations realize their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, build trust, and make doing business easier. I'm Josh Asquith from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Natalie, Honley, and Shivani to discuss the perceptions of analytics functions. Before we dive into this topic, what we're going to do is we'll work our way around the room and we've give some introductions. What I'd like to know is who you are, what you do, and what your passions are. So, Hoyli, do you want to kick us off? Yes. Um, hi, my name is Hoyli. Uh, I work in Nodir in the Treasury function. I locate in Sweden. Uh, my private passion that I developed lately is tennis. I love it. I like it. <laughs> and my Professional passion is balance sheet management, so I love understanding the balance sheet. Okay, awesome. Thank you very much, Charlie. And Shivani. Hi, everyone. My name is Shivani. I'm part of the investor relations and MA team here at Klarna. Uh, and what I do is I, I canvas the, the tech landscape to find the most relevant companies and assessing products uh, that are out there. Uh, on a professional front, I'm passionate about leadership and solving problems. Any kind of problems does not matter. And outside of work, uh, I like to scuba dive and dancing. And for the past few years, I've been learning Lindy Hop. So that has been a big part of my life. It's also awesome. Last but not least, Natalie. Thank you for having me at this podcast, Josh. Uh, so my name is Natalie. I am also at Klarna just as Shivani, and I'm an analytics manager, and I work a lot with the PNL and our forecast. Uh, my professional passion is stakeholder management. I really enjoy working with uh, people from different walks of life. And then my personal one is discovering new cultures, and that could be food, traveling, meeting people, but uh, I'm excited by different cultures. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, a Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. First of all, you are very welcome. Second of all, you three, what a way to make somebody feel disinterested. That is all awesome. Thank you very much. So now that we all know one another a little more, we do have some topics to focus on with regard to the perceptions of analytic functions. So as usual on this podcast, we're going to work our way around the room. I'm going to ask each of you to pose your question, explain the reasons behind your question, and then we'll give the opportunity to have a discussion around it. So let's start with Natalie. Natalie, I believe you have a question. Tell us about how you reached the question and tell us about the question. Yes, um, I will start off with the question. Modeling, big word. How should modeling be left to the analyst? And how much of modeling should be standardized or even AI driven as so to increase the level of accuracy in models? And how I came about this question, I was first thinking of our topic, the perception of an analyst function. And I focused a lot on the word perception, which in the end I realized will be different to any individual you ask. Uh, and the reality is a second topic that is of the actuality is AI and processes. Um, so that's how I built my question. That That is a very interesting question. Um, I, I feel like currently with the with the generative AI hype that we're living in, um, it, it is very relevant for every analyst and all walks of life. Thank you. 
Um, I think that is a very good question because I think analytics have been used as an umbrella in super broad terms that uh, not only the analytics team, but also the stakeholders can have different interpretation when it comes to the expectation and what is the capacity of uh, analytics. So I think that maybe the first question I would ask myself is that uh, the modeling, the purpose is for um, descriptive or predictive analysis. So what kind of analysis? So I would try to figure out, okay, at which stage the, the modeling is at, at that point when that question is posed. Yep, and also in addition to the modeling, I mean, the modeling and the model is probably the outcome of the problem and the, the engagement with the stakeholder. Um, and I, I know there's this quote that has been going around, I think it's by Mark Anderson, that AI will not replace you, but you will be replaced by someone who knows how to use AI uh, at some point. So I feel like um, us as an analyst, us being able to ask the right questions as to what is it to, that needs to be modeled, that cannot be done by AI, at least not yet. Uh, so uh, in, uh, gauging the question, the problem, in, in conjunction with the stakeholder, that is something that the AI cannot do. And that is where the, the analyst comes in. But maybe once that is all figured out and it's, and it's time to build a model and run the codes and run the formula, maybe that is where the AI can add value because um, that's a task that could be replicated and automized. Great, thank you. That's actually um, part of what you said about asking the right question is uh, came was something I was thinking about. Because if you think back, I don't know how far back in time, but originally we used to do calculations by hand. And then at some point we got Excel, but you still had to be able to envision the problem, identify it, and then write the right formulas or think about the potential formulas out there in order to come to the result that you want which is also why I think AI will support us in getting there. And with AI, we have endless, endless, we can reach endless results. However, we still need to identify the problem and we still need to understand how we would like to get there. I agree with that. Uh, but maybe according to my experience, I think um, the world is changing so quickly and it's rather dynamic. So the model is based on assumptions and those assumptions can change quite significantly quite quickly so in my opinion is that i think um in many cases um the ai can help a lot uh, which is much faster than than the, the calculation the calculation capacity is much better than like our human brain but at the same time i think um the the beauty of being an analyst or being uh, currently with uh, when we don't we are not replaced by AI is that we try to we can connect the dots from the output with the reality. So somehow I think um, the AI probably still cannot connect the dots to what's going on at this point in time uh, uh, immediately because uh, because the, the model is not really uh, taken into the new assumption. Um, on what you say, that's actually very interesting because the assumption is where the analysts can input their own and give it a little bit of spice. And as an example, and this is why this question is so fascinating to me today. We, I mean, I'm not an engineer. I don't have an engineering background, but working at Klarna, you have to get up to speed. You have to learn SQL. You have to come across Python. You come across all these languages that I believe traditionally when, when I was educated was not part of an, any analytical study root um, kind of core skills. But today I work with them on a day to day. And um, some parts of the organization have actually done updates on their model and these are still in testing phases where with the help of AI and with the help of these languages, they've built a model, but they've retained a way to keep the assumptions and the manual changes within the analytics. So all the com computation and the entire model is run with AI and script. But then the analyst needs to say, right, um, today we have, I mean, we're affected by a lot of wars, a lot of conflicts globally. This will affect certain markets or um, the recession has hit in markets X, Y, Z, but hasn't come in markets ABC. We believe it will arrive at point, I don't know, let's say April next year. So they can add these manual assumptions um, and then the AI will take it into consideration and then build the model on that. 
Yeah, so I, and this is just me wondering out loud. Uh, I don't know how much of this affects financial modeling, but with generative AI, we've seen these models, the LLMs hallucinate, right? Um, and maybe that is being used to understand the context or the uh, or the assumptions that could be in natural language. But then when input into the model and an output is produced, that somebody would have to check that also, right? Like you, we can't at this moment blindly take an output from, from an LLM or an AI uh, as is, except unless it's just calculations. Um, so how, how do you think about that? Like having that step of like checks and balances by a human. And in this case, it would be most likely the analyst who's doing that. Um, so I think it somehow gets back to how this uh, the model is defined at which stage, which is like prescriptive or predictive and what complexity. Because in my experience, when working in the financial industry, um, all the models, if we classify them as models, they need to be under the scrutiny of regulatory um, radar. So in that sense, it's not like we can just update a model without going through a proper governance framework and also a different committee. So that is basically anchoring to what I try to imply um, is that the, the world is changing quickly, but the model based on um, the, the governance, existing governance framework and also the regulatory requirement, uh, in many cases, they cannot be updated uh, just like that in a, in a blitz second. So I think, uh, how do you see that the challenges to balance the the, the landscape, the regu regulatory landscape, and also the efficiency in updating the model to cater the changing world? Great, thank you. That's a great perspective to take. Um, uh, of course, talking finance, a lot of the models are um, are facing restrictions from regulations. Then you have many models which don't, and I believe these are easily can much more easily make the use of AI. But what I have come professionally to, to know, even when it comes to regulations, you can challenge anything. Um, so we, at my previous company I worked with, we had to update models to, uh, we had to create models in order to complete a PCOB audit, which is a specific type of audit. Um, and we came across IFRS, one of the IFRS. And you could, in order to comply with that particular IFRS, you could, argue which methodology you wanted to use. And there were endless ways in which you could use these. Um, so what that company did, they determined, they had to identify the true value of their products and they just said that whatever price point they offered the market, the true value was 3% above that. And that was it. You get an accountant to sign off it, uh, you support it with certain documentation. Where the, another company could come across and say, well, the true market value will always be X, Y, Z. So I feel that even though there are regulations, as long as you can justify methodology with sufficient support, often you can update your models using whatever tools you see fit. I did not know that there, that there was a space for creativity in, in, in the regulatory world. On that... Um, Finance is very black and white, but they, I mean, there's a new IFRS every, every, every year almost, or there are new regulations, there are new regulations on derivative when something happens. Uh, so I think finance as well, even though it is, you have a set of rules, uh, but to me, accounting is an art. You need to know, you need to know what's written in the book, and then you're an artist. The more you know, the more you can paint the strokes differently. Wow. And I think finance is a little bit like that while staying within within the legal frame, of course. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. That was super interesting. I do have a follow-up question going all strictly in your question and your answers all the way back to the basics. And I ask this because not everybody who listens to this is a is so data literate because everybody has their own specialist interest. How would, in the context of this question or in any analytical question, how would you best describe a model? Give us a second to think about that one. Um, so I 
I haven't done much financial modeling myself, but I come from a product background. And in my world, I've, a model would be that you design a sort of process or calculation or formulae, and you give it certain inputs. There, These formulae, the calculation, the processes you've designed based on certain business assumptions or how you would like the output to be processed as, and then you get the output of that model. That is how I would look at it. And it could be as simple as like an addition or a subtraction function is a model. You give it two numbers, it performs a specific action, and there is an output. Two plus two gives you four. That is in its very basic form in my head, a model. Thank you, Shivani. Um, I would like to add on that. Exactly as you said, there's an input and an output. Now, thinking of our audience who are not analytics and um, to hopefully speak to their interests, most of all, I think everyone here eats. Um, and let's think about a dish, any dish in your, think of any dish that you enjoy. Well, the input will be the ingredients. And uh, for any given dish, you will need, let's say, a set of five different ingredients. These will be the same to have, a, uh, these input ingredients will be the same to have an output dish. But the model is the process on how to get there. And assuming, if we're making a curry dish, there might be some chili. We all have chili as one of the spices in the ingredient. Now the process, and that lies in this case with the analytics, is determining how much chili do you need to add. And that will differ based on which calculations you choose or if you have thought of something or not. The different strengths of chili, maybe you took the extra strong one or you took the extra weak one. And that will also affect how much you should put into your dish. Um, I totally agree with both of you. And I think you you made a very good description. Um, in my opinion, it's um, a little bit more like an Excel can also be is um, can also be classified as a model. Um, so somehow model has all also been an umbrella terms um, with the input and then the output, which facilitates the users to achieve certain um, results. In terms of result, what I meant is, for example, the regulatory requirements or to do some forecasting. Um, so it is quite a broad um, definition. Awesome. Thank you all so much. And it's evident that it comes from a place of knowledge and experience to make something that is quite complex into a very simple and digestible um, way of understanding. So thank you very much. Uh, so that moves us into our next question. Shivani, you brought a question to the panel. Please tell us about it. Yeah, thank you. I think it, it fits very nicely with Natalie's question as almost a follow-up. So my question is, um, how should analysts interact in different teams they go to, and especially when they're new to the team? And now with the, with the AI world we're living in, I think this question becomes even more interesting. And the reason I, I, I thought of this question is because I've spent most of my life in product teams, most of my corporate life in product teams, and um, a lot of the times I've seen this and experienced this myself, that uh, the stakeholders, the product managers are mostly using the analyst in the team as a way to get numbers or data, which they may or may not um, know why we're doing this. Uh, but just in their head, they, they have this idea that this will help them sell the story of the product, uh, which I, uh, I feel can go both ways. Uh, and then an analyst is in an interesting position there because then they have the power to influence that that story uh, of that stakeholder. So, yeah, how how should analysts interact in different teams, especially when they're new to the team? I unfortunately recognize what you described. Um, I think it also comes along with the seniority in the team. So when someone joins, I think the, those who have the knowledge uh, with regard to, let's say, a product, probably they have a, an advantage over the junior person who is more uh, data savvy and to be able to extract the data. So I think this is quite uh, interesting to, to raise that, uh, that, that question. Uh, in my opinion, I think it is about something bigger than what the analyst is, him or his, uh, herself can, can do. It is more to raise the institutional awareness of 
what is data, uh, what can data um, help the business, um, the, the people who face a business or the, the, the people who are more prone to doing subjective or more qualitative and uh, analysis to leverage on the resources or the, the capacity in the team. Yeah, no, that's that's a very fair point. And to add to that, I feel like as an analyst, whenever we go to a team, be it new or old, I think um, definitely we're there because of the experience we have. But we should all we should not take the assumptions that we've had from our previous experiences, previous teams into this new team, and then always ask questions. Um, no, there is no question that's that's stupid to ask. So ask the questions uh, that you have in mind that 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 seems funky to you or that because the teams are functioning in a certain way and have been functioning in a certain way for a really long time. And you as the fresh eyes, you as the analytic point of person there uh, can bring in a different perspective and challenge the status quo. So I feel like asking questions and not taking assumptions, um, in addition to what Hoyle just mentioned, is, is an important part of being an analyst in a team. Um, and also the, the, the reason that I put this question is that we should never assume that the stakeholder knows what they want. Um, I think it is, as an analyst in the team, it is our job to help the stakeholder understand that. Um, they might want this XYZ data, they might want the conversion data because they think that it will explain the story that they want to tell, but that always doesn't happen and the number shows that, oh, the conversion metric hasn't moved. This new feature hasn't changed anything. So they'll be like, oh, but then subtract this and add that uh, and then try to get to the trend or the number that they want. And the analyst does that and the cycle keeps repeating well, after the uh, like feature after feature and so on. So, but in this situation, a good analyst should be able to ask the questions to understand what is the story that they're trying to tell. Maybe conversion is not the right metric. Maybe um, some other margin, some other rate, um, some other KPI is best, best position to tell that story. So then, I mean, the analyst already knows how to pull that data, but pulling the right data and asking the right questions to get to that data is what I feel um, we as analysts should be doing in teams. I totally agree with you. Um, but I think one of the challenges for the more junior person coming into the team is the, um, the, the, the knowledge. In many cases, maybe they might not be able to ask the right questions and maybe they don't have the pontus to ask more follow-up questions. And in many cases, um, we are all human when it comes to communication. I think it requires more than one iteration. So I think it is even beyond the data. Then, of course, when data comes into the picture, it becomes a little bit more complex. Uh, but I think it requires iterations. Um, and also, I I am a strong proponent is that one shouldn't just like create something based on one uh, dialogue. Um, when one creates something, probably one should anchor, re-anchor to the stakeholder to see, okay, is this what you need or, and then gain more input because I think uh, you don't want to spend like 10 months on something that the stakeholder think it is not what they wanted. And on top of that, I think as an analyst, I understand also uh, what you explained, which is, uh, I think the analysts need to take pride, but at the same time, being open-minded to what the, uh, the others have to say uh, even sometimes my need to uh, look up from the data to be able to have a, uh, have a growth mindset to 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 gain. But I, as I with that said, I think it's, it's it should be mutual. It should be like institutional. Have those uh, environments create that environments for everyone to to grow to 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 learn more from each other. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you, Holly. I want to touch back on two things that you've said, uh, which I, I agree with a lot. The number one, a lot of the junior, you talked about that a lot of the junior analysts don't have the skills to ask the right questions. And that is why they're juniors. They're here to learn. And I think it is our responsibilities as seniors to teach them, to take them through that journey and to support them, to let them know that you have the space to ask the questions. And as Shivani said, there are no wrong questions. Uh, use senior members use other stakeholders and trying to learn from them and you get there by asking the questions by raising your voice and by sharing your thought process because that is when we can shed some clarity and light on okay this is how you're looking at the problem but actually have you thought about these other components 
uh, and the second part which ties into this, uh, I very much like that you talk about iterations. It is not just one dialogue and then we come up with a solution. I mean, if it was that, then the world would function like a glove, right? Uh, but it is a continuous dialogue and it is, as we go through this dialogue, understanding the problem space even more. Uh, one of the things we do here in Germany at Klarna is we, we're trying to re record um, almost like a, what do you call a dictionary or of all our different metrics. And the more we speak with different stakeholders, the more you understand that it is not as simple as you think of just writing a simple definition, but while there might be an accounting perspective, what about a profitability perspective? All oh, right, what are those two differences? Okay, I focus maybe on the accounting, you focus on the profitability. In order for me to understand what the profitability person means, I need to have multiple dialogues, understand their metrics, how they look at data, and what they can do with data versus of what I can do with data. Yeah, that's that's a very relevant point, and I think it ties into um, my next point um, or my my next like idea onto this, which was to explore a problem space from every aspect. So, in addition to the like the iterations that we're doing with this primary stakeholder, we have multiple people on the team who may have touched upon this in different shapes and forms in different like time periods and then there might be other secondary stakeholders around there so we as analysts I think we should be speaking to all of them to get like different perspectives and then uh, go digging there like hunt for data and hunt for the right metrics and the models that we want to build on top of that uh, while it's like not just chasing one particular path initially but exploring all of them so that what else is out there and we can be more proactive in our analysis and not just reactive and obviously this differs from situation to situation um, and where one is at in their career uh, but I think we should uh, strive to to get that more holistic view on a problem from an uh, from an analytics perspective, even if it touches like operations part of that of that problem or accounting, like you said, um, we should not limit ourselves or pigeonhole ourselves. Like, no, we'll just look at the data and this data and that's it. Um, I totally agree with that. And I want to go back to the point that Natalie mentioned about the senior, the responsibility. Um, it's a lot for a junior to, to, to bring to the table on the first day to the work so i think in a in a way um, um the senior also needs to be able to bring them up to 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 guide them and to bring them to talk to different stakeholders it's not like they are long facing uh the external or internal stakeholder because it can be quite intimidating and quite um i think it's more like uh, uh, from the learning curve perspective, I think it's more 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 educational if a senior goes to the those meetings together with someone more junior. And besides that, I um, reflected a little bit on my career, and I am pretty hands on, and I can dig into the data for uh, do the the heavy lifting. We so we we call it heavy lifting. So I think. It can be quite uh, pleasant as well because you, it's nobody bother you. You put on your headphone and you try to focus. But at the same time, I think um, one needs to um, lift up their their head from time to time, as I mentioned before, because um, it is a heavy job and it is very time consuming. So I think if I could give myself recommendation, uh, the younger me recommendation, I would ask Hoyli, maybe lift up your head to reflect on the data, to look into the data, to, un to try to put the data into the context instead of rushing uh, to, 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 to deliver to what the others want uh, impose on me to deliver in terms of uh, data. Thank you, Hoyli. I very much like your own advice to yourself, and that's something I work with and I will work with on a daily basis, to take a step back, pause and look at the whole picture. Because um, it is something that probably many of us struggle with, that once you're in your little space and you feel very comfortable and whether it's building a model, digging on data, whatever it is, we forget to, okay, why am I doing this? What is the end goal uh, and where are the priorities? And uh, I also wanted to touch back on um, the scenario with the junior and the senior. I agree, the senior, it is 100% the senior's responsibility to give the junior space. But I think also in the world that we live in today, and that's a challenge for every single junior or fresh uh, university, high school graduate, um, try to get a seat at the table. It is 
you've been invited to a company to work there. Uh, you've been invited into meetings. You're there for a reason. Your voice and your opinion is valued. So raise it or ask, ask a questions. And I, I do believe that there are no stupid questions. Um, you're asking the question because you want to know, you want to learn and you want to develop. So um, go for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And to Hoyle's earlier point about being hands-on, that is something we we really value here at Klarna, and we we call it going to the Gemba or um, going going to the place where it actually happened. And everyone, senior to junior, like every person at Klarna, is highly encouraged to be extremely hands-on with whatever they're doing, um, and not like pass the buck. Or, 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 or things like that. So that is something I I definitely um, relate with uh, a lot, Hoyle. And I think in addition to that, um, I also feel one important part of being an analyst in any team is storytelling. So we, we may have um, pulled in like uh, analysis based off of millions of lines of code or millions of lines of like rows in a database and then found this insight that nobody before has, has ever ever thought of but if you're if but unless we're able to communicate it to the right people in the right manner that they understand um, it's all for nothing uh, until that point because uh, being an analyst junior or senior different parts of your career we're going to interface with stakeholders who are technical non-technical a mix of both in the same room and then in that moment we we have to learn over time and it comes over time it like nobody knows it right off the bat and every stakeholder is different every stakeholder in every company is different everybody likes their like slides formatted in a certain way so um, that is something we learn over time but to be able to explain it with uh, to everybody in the room at going to the level that they understand and not assuming anything that, oh, I, I know that um, APV is, means something, but it is the, the average product value. But I knew that maybe everybody in the room did not know that. So not making assumptions while, making, uh, while uh, delivering our results and communicating it to our stakeholders, I think is is also a very important part of um, it's. It is definitely the part that that other people will remember us about, uh, remember us from. Thank you. You had a lot of good points there. Uh, I wanted to comment on the hands-on, but what I will actually do is comment on the storytelling part you mentioned. Uh, I can only echo what you've said, but. The storytelling part is so important. I mean, think of think of children when you tell them the bedtime story. It has to be it has to be interesting. You have to capture their attention. The best CEOs have a good story when delivering results and can really manipulate might not be the right word, but influence their market perception because they can bring out the best point of their company. Even they can turn something negative into a positive point when looking out to the future. The iPhone presentation, I don't know if you've ever looked at Steve Jobs' first presentation on the iPhone, was an A-class delivery. Um, and even once I was at a company that I worked for, I was in a room with 600 analytics, and we had a, a C-level management come as a guest to talk to us. And that person managed to insult a room of 600 people while having them laugh at their jokes. I mean, it was... Fabulous. Yeah, so uh, storytelling is uh, a skill I think everybody should work with. Um, that is interesting. <laughs> uh, I want to go back uh, a little bit to what Shivani mentioned uh, about asking questions. Um, along, like across my career, I start to realize Sometimes many people don't ask the question. The question one asks, actually many have the same question, just they don't want to be the stupid one. So I think even though we might know that we know certain topics, but one further question usually um, enrich the knowledge that one already has. And on top of that, I have some flashbacks also about my early career that all the mistakes I made is that I have an engineering background and obviously English is not my mother tongue. And I remember at one point, one of my colleagues asked me, 
can you speak like a normal human being, use the layman terms? Because I, I was using the engineering terms. So I think understanding um, the audience, because uh, it can coming from like uh, operation IT, then you need to speak more technical terms. And when you talk to C-level, you need to be more simple. You need to put the business into the context. So I think all this, uh, if I reflect a little bit, I think uh, one can always learn through the mistake or by looking at the others, how they do it. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Completely agree with you there, Foyle. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can only round off our conversation by, by, by the saying that an analysis is only as good as your least informed stakeholder. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, I would say that uh, for every analyst out there who's, who's looking for a new team, new job, etc., cetera, let, let's just strive to be very good at what we do, uh, encompassing every aspect of our job and then trying to communicate it in the best way possible. That was an awesome discussion. What that was a really interesting journey through junior to senior analytics and how the two should work together, and then summarised really nicely. Uh, that was really really enjoyable. Thank you very much. Uh, and I think it brings us nicely into our final question, that is posed to us by Harley. So Harley, would you please kindly tell us about your question? Yes, absolutely. Um, my question is, what are the challenges you face when finding candidates in your analytics team? Um, what do you consider the market is currently missing? The question I pose is based on my personal experience when I did the hiring for some analytic roles, which I find it very difficult to find the right candidate. For instance, if you find um, someone who is more senior, in many cases, they want to do the strategic thinking, they don't want to do the, we so-called the heavy lifting to do the, 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 the drill down of the data. But then at the same time, when you hire someone who is more junior, probably the trajectory, it takes a much longer time to, to provide them the context of the, the knowledge. So that is, uh, I have found it very difficult to find the right candidates which can fit into an analytic group in a foreseeable, like, short future? Uh, that is my question. Thank you, Aurelie. I think that's a very important question, especially as we shape the future of analytics competences. Uh, one component I would have is cutting through the noise and identifying what are the skills we truly need, which skills can be learned, and also being transparent with the end candidates. So whether we're looking for senior or junior, but if it is a senior, being transparent and saying, well, you will have to do some of the hands-on work. This is how we, I mean, I think at Klarna, it's a, it's a perfect example. Everybody needs to learn SQL. You need to be able to pull your own queries. You don't go to engineers. You don't go to, there's not one person that does that for the team. And it's okay not to have that skill when you join the company. However, you have to be willing to learn and to develop. And you will learn from your colleagues, but a lot of this will also be self-taught. We will provide the tools, but a lot of it will have to come from you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I completely um, agree with what you're saying, Natalie, because um, that is also one of the the pillars of what makes an, uh, makes an analyst good at their job, right? Being curious. And if it demands hands-on, then let it be. Uh, I, I personally don't uh, feel that that should be like a, a factor that prohibits anyone to take up a job. But to Hoyley's point, a lot of people are not willing to do that. Um, yeah, I, I'm also thinking about it. And I feel like maybe we need maybe certain better ways to, to assess the curiosity of a candidate or their willingness to learn new things so that uh, even if they don't know it right now, they, they are willing to pick it up when they come for the job. Great. And one further thing I wanted to add, it's it's about matching. Um, I mean, I always, nowadays, when I search for a job, I think of it like it's just like when you're trying to find your partner in life. Uh, I think when you're just fresh out of school, you want a job and you want a job at a good company with a good salary. But as you progress in your career, it's not just the employer that has to find someone that's right for them. 
but you, the candidate, need to also assess, is this a good match? And I think sometimes it's okay to say, no, this is not a good match for me, but hold on, my neighboring team or um, a different team within the organization is looking for somebody with your profile. Uh, this actually happened to me before joining Klarna. We, um, the, we really liked each other from a cultural perspective. So the company, the uh, hiring managers really thought I would be a good fit. And I thought the company was a good fit. However, the first job I got offered was not something that I found challenging enough. Um, and when I declined that job, the hiring manager said, I thought so. And a little later, the call came, said, we have something that could fit. And what I liked is they recognized a talent that could potentially match and then they passed on to a different team. And if you're willing to wait a little bit longer in the long run, I think it will be um, I think there are many good points there. I think the honesty is a very important point from both sides. The candidate is honest with uh, the, the capacity and also willingness to learn. And then also the, the one who is doing the hiring to be open with the expectation. Uh, and also if they consider certain role is capable or uh, compatible to certain candidates. Um, and also I have a question is that um, beside beyond the skill set, uh, as we discussed earlier in in, in the uh, in this uh, forum, is that um, an analyst needs to face different stakeholders. So in many cases, those skill sets are even beyond the the technical skill set, the knowledge, uh, the stakeholder management on all levels. Do you ever find this person exist in this financial world? Because I find it very difficult to find. Uh, candidates with have all this uh, capacity all in one, which is quite difficult from my in my experience. No, that that's a very very fair uh, fair observation, and that happens all the time. I think in in those, I mean, we've been in both sides of the situation, right? Looking for jobs, and then the ones that are putting these job posters out, which demands like a unicorn with. Uh, blue blue shoes and <laughs> I don't know golden hair uh, so I, I think in those situations being being on the hiring manager side I feel like we as a hiring team or manager we should list down what are our non-negotiables and this comes back to like Natalie's point of looking for a for a, for a partner uh, that these are the things that we're willing to that these are the things we absolutely need uh, and then these are the things we're willing it's okay if the person, does not have them, might be, they might be willing to learn or maybe they, they don't know and then we find those skills complementary in other team members. But having that that list of like, this is what I this is what, what I at least want. And these are the some, some things that we can teach them over time. Because like you said, Howley, no one's like 100% um, unicorn with blue shoes and golden hair, but maybe we can get them the right wig, basically. <laughs> I second everything you've just said, and I have uh, just an example to round it all to round that point off. Um, I, I worked in investment banking in the UK about ten years ago, and I thought the UK at that industry did it extremely well at the time. They did not really care what you studied. What was essential was: do you have good analytical skills? Do you have the skills we need to be able to do the job? Because we will teach you how we want you to do it, um, and. I believe a lot, most of the senior management had studied history, art, completely different things. But it is about the person and if they can grow with the vision. I, I think I, I got, I'm inspired by your input. <laughs> I think that is a really fair point to list out what is the non-negotiable qualities, what are the negotiable qualities. Then I have a next question is that if, if um, from a perspective, let's say, if having um, coding skill set is easier to stretch from that skill set to more to to a more softer skill set, but then maybe like from a history, I'm not underestimating anyone's capacity, but maybe someone with an art major, maybe it's more difficult to become an engineer. So, do you think that is um, feasible in actuality to stretch from? Both sides, uh, very technical to to really art artistic or artistic to really <laughs> technical. I see what you're saying. Uh, for example, I would probably not trust an art major to perform an operation on me without a little extra, you know, education or like hands-on job. But 
I think on the engineering side, those are the skills that can be taught. Uh, and then I think it's also a question, do you need somebody right now to solve a short-term problem? Or can you wait for that person to get up to speed? And by having the right hiring managers ask the right questions in a room, I think you can come down. I mean, we get it wrong sometimes, but I think very often you can shed light whether or not that person wants, number one, is curious and wants to develop other skills, but also has the capability. Because if you have a candidate on the other end of the seat asking you, okay, right, so let's say you work with this particular coding language. Well, um, how long does it take to get up to par or what do I need to do? The person will show interest and ask the right questions. And I think slowly you will peel the onion and try to identify, okay, well, this could potentially be a match. I will have to put in a lot of work at the beginning and support this person. But if this person stays on for X amount of years, then it will be a beneficial relationship on both ends. Then what we're talking about is almost making an investment in this person. Um, and I, if, if it's a great candidate, then why not, right? Um, and I think the other, if you flip the coin and the other, other side is, is the candidate also willing to make efforts to, to learn those skills? Um, is the art major willing to take that Udemy course or an, like an extra hour a day to, to learn those skills? And I think that is also important to assess in the, in the interview process. It was, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid and maybe I, I'd still love to be an astronaut, but like, I don't want to go through the training of being an astronaut. So will you hire me as an astronaut? Uh, so yeah, um, that is also something that is important to assess. And I think that's where like having great hiring managers and, and a great recruiting team is important so that they, they have the right skill set to assess these different things. I totally agree with you. I think, um, in my opinion, I think it's better to get it right. As you mentioned, Natalie, the, it's like a finding a partner. Uh, it's better to get it right to get it wrong. Because even though um, the, the, the hiring process itself is quite costly from the company's perspective, and I have experienced that uh, uh, the candidate in the team is not uh, functioning uh, as expected, then it's also quite complicated when it comes to the team dynamic. So I think it's uh, very, very important to get it right. Then, of course, I mean, we are all humans. Is uh, I, I think we cannot make it right all the time, but I think it's the learning process to know like what is required, what is the, as uh, Shivani mentioned, what is the must-have uh, criteria quality of a candidate, what are not. Great, and then I would just like to add one more point. Uh, once the process is finalized and somebody signs on, and let's say the candidate doesn't integrate well in the team, I think it's also to follow through, to ask, to listen and be heard, ask the candidate the question, um, maybe through, I mean, there are different tools. You can have bi-weekly meetings, you can have uh, bi-annual um, performance reviews. I mean, there are many, many tools out there, but to give the candidate a space as well to, to be heard and then to support the candidate in in things where we believe he or she would need help and also where the candidate has raised, well, actually, I need more support on this. Um, and then also for the team dynamics, there are many things that can be done. I cannot stress this well enough. A team activity or event here and there actually helps a lot. I, I also have a point, and this is this is just came to me while, while we were just talking about uh, these uh, these job descriptions. Maybe we we can like start to be a little bit more cognizant of what we're putting out there, so that we don't intimidate the the good candidates. Because sometimes I read these descriptions, and I'm like, oh my god, I can't do one, two, and three out of these twelve things that are asked. So maybe I don't apply, uh, and uh, that should not. Uh, that is not something that should deter a candidate from applying. So, I, and I know we're just four people in a room, but maybe we move one mountain a day and get there. But uh, yeah, I, I think we everybody can do better in that in in writing those job descriptions. Um, I think I learned a lot from this conversation. I think uh, it's really fair to mention that. Uh, one needs to be realistic from both sides and also to be open-minded when it comes to the the, the the candidate's background. And 
I think also the attitude, as we discussed here, is the willingness to learn is very essential when it comes to uh, uh, finding the right candidates in, in this dynamic uh, fintech or financial world. So I hope that I can learn or try to hire someone <laughs> with those uh, prerequisites in the future. Keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everybody. And one more question, which kind of touches on what everybody has discussed, and it's a very short one just to uh, round things up. But of this hiring process, we've talked about who should be, should we hire somebody with the attitude or the skill set? Should we hire somebody with the story or the technicalities? How much of that hire should be done on gut feel versus a predefined criteria that is objective and can be ticked? Thank you, Josh. I think it's a balance. You have, let's go back to the medical professional. I don't believe you can hire somebody to be a heart surgeon tomorrow to do heart operations that doesn't have the required skill sets. Um, I don't know many patients that would allow him or her to operate on them. But then again, I believe every final hiring manager should also listen to their gut feeling a little bit because they do know, will this be, it has to be a tip with, uh, fit with the team. It also should be to some extent a fit culturally with the company because you don't want to put two, two balls in the way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think as uh, we grow in our careers, that is one of the soft skills we pick up is the ability to be to to judge um, the the person on the other side of the table. And we, like you said, we do get it wrong sometimes, but you, we learn from those experiences and we get better uh, at like striking this balance um, for when when we're hiring a person. And then to add to that, when you're sitting on the other side of the chair, if you already get a feeling that this might not be a match, ask more questions. And then I would also say, listen to, I know sometimes when we sit on that chair, we really, really need that job now. But then maybe it's worth waiting two months so you don't have to start the process again in another year. That's that's a very fair point. The, the, the constant cycle of looking for jobs, getting into one, and then, oh, realizing we're not, this is not meant to be, and then looking again. Okay. Well, thank you so much for answering my question. It's really helpful, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that is thinking that. So, I wanted to take this time. We have explored the different areas that you guys have brought. It's been a really interesting journey to be a part of. So I wanted to take this time. So Shivani, Hoyli and Natalie, to thank you very much for joining us today and having this conversation.